All right. Well, if you've got a Bible, um, open it with me to Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing a series that we're doing on the seven churches in Revelation. Um, Jesus is active and present uh, in his church. Uh, he is always um, observing his church, disciplining his church, um, working in your life as an individual, if you're a believer this morning, and working in our lives collectively as a body. And in the seven churches that Jesus addresses in Revelation, there are various things going on in every church, because every church is different. But every church also has some things in common. And so we see some things that are kind of repeated in a few of these churches. They're struggling with some of the same issues. And what we also notice is some churches are doing one thing well, and other churches are doing another thing well, and some churches are doing one thing poorly and another thing poorly. And there are only a couple churches that Jesus doesn't give any rebuke to. Most of them, there's some sort of reproof. Um, but it's kind of a mixed bag, right? You've got churches that are doing, a couple churches doing really well. Some churches doing kind of this, uh, you know, back and forth, good areas, bad areas. And a couple of churches that are just doing really, really poorly. And uh, one church in particular that we'll look, uh, look at in a few weeks. But So this morning, what we're learning as we go through this is we're now a few weeks into this series, is that Jesus is not satisfied with a partially healthy church. He's not satisfied with a partially healthy Christian. And so that's why you see as we go through this, he'll say, you're doing these things well, but I have this against you or these few things against you because Jesus wants us to be completely healthy. He wants you as a believer to be completely healthy. There's not an area of your life where he thinks it's okay for you to be spiritually unfit. In every area of your life and in my life, he wants us to be in tune with him. Completely healthy, thriving in line with what he says. And so we have to beware of blind spots. Uh, just like you have those in your car when you're going down the interstate. That little blind spot sometimes you have. If you don't look on all the right places, you get over and everybody's, you know, uh, yelling at you and blowing the horn at you. And you're about running them off the road, right? Maybe that's just me. Um, but those blind spots. And we get those in our lives. Those areas that we don't realize that there's something there, but it's there. Uh, and the fact that you don't realize that it's there doesn't make it any less there. And those things are not just in your life personally, they also can be in our life corporately as a church. There are things that, as a church, that we can just forget and, or not even fully realize that they're there. And sometimes it's just because we don't look. And that's usually the way blind spots work, right? We're just not looking good. And so Jesus, though, sees everything. Uh, he sees with perfect 20-20 vision, and he sees everything behind us, before us, and in us, and around us. And he sees it all, and he evaluates. And this morning, he's looking at the church in Thyatira, all right? Fun word to say. And this church's problem is their attitude toward evil, their attitude toward sin. And that's what we need to examine ourselves in this morning individually and corporately, is what is our attitude towards what that which is evil? What is our attitude towards sin? Do we think about evil and about sin the way Jesus does, the way our culture does, the way we brought up in our family too, or some mishmash of that, or are we constantly allowing the Word of God to transform us, to view evil and to view sin the way Jesus does. And that's what Jesus wants, and that's what we need to do as a church. And so, But this church has a problem. They are a little too tolerant when it comes to evil. So look with me at Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent. But she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow, so it's been pointed out by commentators over and over again that this is the longest letter of the seven and it's written to the most insignificant town. The church in the most insignificant town. Of all the, church, of all the towns, we know the least about Thyatira. It was just not real significant in its day. It didn't hold the political influence and some of the social influence that places like Pergamum and Ephesus held. And so it's kind of this little forgotten about uh, Country town, we might call it, you know, out in rural uh, province of Asia here. And Jesus writes to them the longest letter. He takes the most time in dealing with this church. And this place, uh, this small town, was known for one particular thing. You know, there's not a lot that we know about. There's one particular thing we know about, and it plays a key role in this letter. And that's these things called trade guilds. We know they had trade guilds and they held significance in this town and a lot of power in this town. A trade guild was a kind of modern day union. Every trade had a guild. If you were a baker, you were a member of a guild. Kind of like being a member of a union. If you were a bronze worker, you were a member of a guild. If you were in the production of linen, you were a member of a guild. Whatever your hob, whatever your, not hobby, whatever your work was, whatever your career was, there was a guild associated with it. And guilds tended to be um, connected to the towns where you know, a lot of that, a lot of work was going on. So this was kind of a very, you know, you might think of it as a very um, blue-collar kind of town um, that had a lot of um, hard-working people that were stationed there and had guilds that were stationed there. And that was kind of their thing. That's, that's kind of what they're most known for. And these guilds had a lot of power within town. Um, and, they, and, and they grew to hold political power and things. As we know, we see we, we can kind of connect this with even the labor unions of our day, and that's kind of what you have here. It's kind of a uh, first century version of that. And so, if you wanted to have a job and you wanted to have a business, that business was going to be a part of the guild. And these things kind of worked like families. They even referred to themselves as, as families many times. And in the town, just like in all these other cities we've been looking at. The large majority of the people are pagan idolaters. All right, they worship the Roman gods. They worship Caesar. They worship in this town Apollo, and so they got immoral people a part of a part of a worshiping idolatrous false gods, and then uh, they get together and they've got these um, they've got these um, they've got these unions these these trade guilds. And as, when they would get together, each, each of these trade guilds many times would have like their own little deity, their little patron deity, they would call it. And they would have these feasts. And at these feasts, they would celebrate this deity. It was kind of like a worship act. And they would eat meat and things that had been sacrificed 
to this idol. And then a lot of times these feasts would also lead to all kinds of debauchery and sexual immorality and things of that nature. Because many times when you look at um, the New Testament, you have to realize a lot of times the reason idolatry and sexual immorality, you see that kind of connected in the New Testament. You see when, they're, when, when the Apostle Paul or someone's addressing one, he addresses the other. They're connected a lot because they were connected a lot at that time. And so people didn't just go to the idol temple to worship the idol. They went to the idol temple to worship the idol. And a part of that was immorality with temple prostitutes many times. And so this thing was all kind of weaved together. And so that's a very big deal here in this particular town. Because what you have to understand is their worship and their work and their livelihood were all weaved together and connected in their culture. And we know for the believer that our worship and our work and our livelihood are all supposed to be weaved together in our lives, right? And so tension is abound to happen, and we're going to get to that. And so first thing Jesus does here to this city and this church in this city is he introduces himself as he does to all the churches. You can tell a lot about how Jesus is about to address the church by how he introduces himself. And this is the first church, and he says, I'm the son of God. And that right there is quite the announcement to begin with. Um, he's, he's, he's laying it all out on the table, right? I am God. I am the Son of God. Because by claiming to be the Son of God, he's claiming to be of the same essence as the Father, right? And so he's claiming deity. He's claiming to be equal with God. And so Jesus says, I am the Son of God. And he starts there because what you believe about that shapes and interprets how you, excuse me, shapes and molds how you interpret everything else. Because if Jesus is the Son of God, and they believe that, and if we believe that, that means whatever comes next doesn't really matter. It's just, yes, sir, right? I mean, if he really is who he says he is, that shapes and molds everything else. The only response is to listen to him and to obey him. So if we say we believe who Jesus says he is, but it doesn't affect how we respond to him, that brings into question whether or not we believe what we say say we believe, right? If I told you, hey, this stove is hot, and I'm going to touch it, Right? You'd say, you don't really think that stove's hot. Maybe the stove's not really hot. You're, I mean, or you're crazy, right? I'm going to lay my face on this stove. It's hot. Watch. You, 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 it doesn't make sense, right? And I use that silly illustration to point out it makes no sense. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Now, watch me not listen to Him. Watch me not obey Him. Watch me build my life on what I think and not what He... You'd say, something's up here. Either you're kind of, you know, spiritually crazy, um, and we all are a little bit, right? Or we don't believe what we say we believe. And so Jesus, first thing he does is he lays it all on the table and he says, I'm the son of God. And then he says what? He says, who has eyes like a flame of fire. He's recalling the vision that we looked at a few weeks ago. The first thing that John sees when he sees Jesus. And we said that those eyes like a flame of fire pointed to his knowledge. His piercing omniscience. Nothing that he does not see. And so he's letting this church know that the son of God sees your church. And for this church, that's, as we've read already, that's not uh, good news in some areas. He sees. He, he sees everything. And it's, he goes on to say, have feet like burnished bronze. And that's a picture of his strength and his power, maybe even of his judgment. It's with those feet that he will trample his enemies. And he paints this strong picture, kind of this harsh picture of him as the one who sees everything, who is the judge, who judges in strength and in purity, and who tramples his enemies. And that's how he introduces himself to them. And what we have to understand is Jesus uses language in communicating with this particular church that made sense in their town because they had a lot of these trade workers who, did, who, who worked with bronze and things of that nature. 
They were used to seeing the fire. And they were used to seeing the bronze type material. He's using language akin to them. He's communicating to them in a way they don't. He's taking everyday things from their city that they're used to seeing in workplaces. And he's applying it to himself because he wants them. Yes, he wants them to understand that he sees and knows everything. He wants them to understand that he's the just judge who is strong and powerful and judges everything and will trample his enemies. And he communicates it in a way that they'll get it. Because Jesus wants us to know who he is. And he doesn't just want us to have a cartoon in our head of who we think he is. He wants us to know the real Jesus. And so we have to, yes, understand his grace and his mercy and his kindness and his goodness. And we have to understand his judgment and his strength and his holiness and his power. The fact that he sees everything and the fact that he's the judge of all the earth. He wants us to know all of that. He, he, he's not hiding anything. He's not, he, he's not playing some sort of game or some sort of charade where he's disguising himself and, you know, guess who I am? Then you find out in eternity, well, guess what? He was the Son of God. You're in trouble. He's laying all that on the table. He wants us to know, I am the Son of God. This is who I am. Obey me. Right? And, so, and then if we don't, it's on us. So Jesus wants us to understand that. And so he introduces himself that way because he's going to give them some pretty strong words. So the next thing he does is he evaluates them. And as always, there's... Sometimes it's just positive and sometimes it's just negative, we're going to see. But here it's positive and it's negative. The positive evaluation is, he says, I know your works. And then he compliments them in five places. Love, faith, service, patient endurance, and growth. And so Ephesus was failing in love. Do you remember that? A few weeks ago we looked at Ephesus and they were, that was their problem. They had doctrinal soundness. They hated things that were evil. But they didn't love. They didn't love Christ like they used to. They didn't love each other like they used to. This church is the opposite, we're going to find out. They're all about the love. You know, oh, we love Jesus and we love people. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing. They were rich in love. They were rich in faith. They continued to believe and hold to the, to the faith that had been handed down to them. They were rich in service. This was an active church with people who were serving and doing things that Christians are supposed to do. Those are all good things. This was a church that was patient in endurance. They were steadfast. They had not given up. They had faced adversity and stood up to it. And their latter works exceeded the first. The opposite of Ephesus, whose works were weak, whose love was not what it used to be. Because this is a growing church, it seems like. They seem like they're progressing, and they are. They're progressing in some areas of spiritual growth. They're committed to service, to their works. They're more fruitful now than they had been in the past. Now, what you need to understand is these are all good things. Love, faith, service, patient, endurance, growing and progressing in what you believe. and all Those are good things. That is good, healthy signs in a church. Those are signs of life, not signs of death. These are good things. Jesus isn't being sarcastic. He's, he's saying, hey, these are good things. Good job, right? And these are the types of things that will get guests visiting and get a church growing. And these are the types of things that will get you written up in magazines. And, you know, this will, this will get you attention. Might get you on TV. Might get you some interviews. These are all good signs that will help you build a bigger budget and help you build bigger buildings and help you maybe even do more ministry. But then, but Jesus isn't satisfied. Because Jesus is like a good doctor. If you go to your doctor and you go get a complete physical and they look at you and they say, now I want you to know your lungs sound great. Oh, great. My lungs sound great. Your vision is great. Right? You're, I mean, you're everything, I mean, you're, everything seems, everything is, is, is great. Your flexibility, everything, I mean, we, we're just, ears look great. Everything seems to be great. Tested your blood, blood work came, came, came great. Oh, great, I'm healthy. Yeah, you're healthy. Now, you do need to know that your heart's not working very well and you could die anytime. 
Is that not a big deal? Well, no, but see, nine out of ten areas you're doing, you're off the charts. So you just got this one area, so you're fine. You're healthy. I would get a second opinion, right? Wouldn't you? And we would say, that's not a good doctor. That's not a good doctor. That doctor's got, it's just not a good doctor because I'm not healthy. Jesus looks at this church and he says, look, you're, you're doing good. But there's this one area that's going to kill you. It, you're sick. You've got all these signs of health, just like your body can. You can have all these signs of health and be healthy. And all these, but in this particular area, you are weak and you are dying. And like a good doctor, Jesus goes to work. He says, I have this against you. Against you. We see that word again. Anytime you hear Jesus say he has something against you, you need to, you know, <laughs> what, what? So you need to lean in. What's his problem? That you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Jesus' problem with this church is that they tolerate something that shouldn't be tolerated. And almost every translation translates it that way, tolerate. The word in the Greek means to allow or to permit, to put up with. It's an issue of a church tolerating, putting up with, allowing heretical teaching and gross immoral sin in their midst. And here's a person in particular, this lady, who was not only committing these sins, but were leading others to do the same. And Jesus says, I have this against you. That you're tolerating this woman. And here's what we have to understand. Because tolerance is a big word in our society. And by the way, we've completely redefined it. And and literally, we have changed. The dictionary term for tolerance is changing. I read something about that this week by D.A. Carson, about how, how there was a time when you would read it and it was all about understanding and respecting opinions. You recognize the validity of other viewpoints, that there's other viewpoints, that they're real. Now, it's more of a, you recognize that they're real and you agree with them. And if you don't agree with them, you're intolerant. Well, that's not really what tolerance is supposed to be all about, right? Well, here, Jesus is telling us there's some things that we're not supposed to tolerate at all. There's some things that you're, you're, you're not to, to lean into, you're to pull away from. And in particular, it's evil, it's sin. We're not supposed to tolerate sin. We should never be more tolerant than Jesus. But we sometimes are. When we tolerate what Jesus hates, we're not being loving. We're rebelling. If Jesus says it's not love, it's not love. And we know Jesus loves. We know Jesus loved this particular woman. He gave her time to repent. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But there came a time where something had to be addressed in a more serious fashion. Now, who was this woman? That woman Jezebel. Don't you just love the way that says that? That woman Jezebel, right? And we've used that term. And you see that in church culture all the time. It's never good when somebody refers to someone or to a lady as a Jezebel. Um, that's, ne- that's never been used in a positive light. There weren't any little Jewish girls running around in the first century with the name Jezebel. Not a single one. That was not her name. That was the type of person she was. Because Jezebel is a reference to the Old Testament. You might remember the famous uh, scene of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And he calls upon God, right, to bring down fire. He shows off and says, you go over here, these prophets of Baal. Baal was this fertility idol of that day. He says, you go over here and you call down Baal. And you ask him to to set a fire to this altar. Then I'll go here and I'll call down on God. And that's God to set fire to this altar. And whoever shows up, that's who we're going to worship. That's who's God. That's who is God. And then they go over there and they are calling down Baal and nothing happens and and. Elijah calls on the Lord God and he, he brings fire down and dries up all the water, burns up the altar and just shows up and shows off in such a huge way to, to let them realize there's only one God. Well, Jezebel was the lady. She was the, the, it was the first time that a king in Israel, the king of the, the northern kingdom, 
uh, when the kingdoms were split, King Ahab, it was the first time that married Jezebel. It was the first time that one of these kings had married a pagan woman. She was a pagan idolatress, and she pushed and promoted Baal worship in Israel and led tons of people into idol worship. And that's what gets you that scene. She hated Elijah. And you might remember, at one point, Elijah's scared to death of her. He's depressed, sitting under a tree somewhere, hoping God will kill him just because he's terrified of this woman. And she ultimately dies a violent, kind of horrific, kind of gross death, and the dogs eat her, fulfilling prophecy that God said. God judged her very harshly for her sin. And so, in Israel... To refer to anybody as a Jezebel was never going to be perceived of, of, as a good thing. So there was not a woman there named Jezebel. But there was a particular lady there, it seems. And I do believe this was a real person and not just imagery. But there was a real person there, I believe, who claimed to be a prophetess. In other words, she claimed to hear from God and to hear God speak and to talk for God. Who had a lot in common with this lady because she was leading people into sin and idolatry. Leading people away from the Lord. And Jesus is kind of letting them know, it's like I judge the Jezebel of the Old Testament. I'm going to judge this type of Jezebel in the New Testament because what we have to understand is the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God hated sin. He hates sin and he'll always hate sin. And he's a holy God. And so here you have this woman who is teaching and seducing, Jesus says, my servants. In other words, there were Christians in the room, in the church, who had been led astray by this. Who were Because of this, they had violated their conscience by eating meat sacrificed to idols. They had slept with people they shouldn't sleep with. They had committed adultery, sexual immorality, whatever. Now, here's what I believe the scenario was. This is the most likely case. And why this teaching was so popular. Because she obviously had power. Remember the trade guilds. We said those were a big deal. Idol worship. Sexual immorality. All connected to this. So, if you wanted to be a baker, you were going to be a part of the... Trade guild. If you weren't a part of the guild, you weren't going to be a baker. So if you wanted to do something for a living, you were going to be a part of that guild. And at that guild, you were going to worship that patron deity. And you were going to go to the feast. And you were going to eat the meat sacrificed to idols. And a lot of times, there was going to be sexual immorality and things that took place in the midst of all that. And it became very difficult for believers because it's kind of like, I believe Jesus is Lord. I don't believe in these idols, and I believe Jesus' design for sexuality is what fits. I, my, my sexual ethic is to, be, is to be formatted around what the Bible says, not, just, not about what culture says. And so you've got to draw these lines in the sand to live as a Christ follower, but doing so may cost you your job. How are you going to provide for your family? This tension begins to hit between the culture and the church. And a woman comes along and she goes, hey, I've heard from God. Got a way you can keep, have both. God's okay if you're eating that meat sacrifice that idol. Idols of no consequence to him. And she probably took some things Paul said over here in, in, in Corinth and she manipulated it and used it as a way to leverage and to get these people to violate their consciences. And she what is, and, and sexual immorality and she might have had some sort of Gnostic view that just kind of said, you know, what you do with your body is what you do with your body. It's different than your spirit. Do whatever you want to. Or it might have been like we talked about last week, that, that lawless kind of view of, hey, you're saved by grace, not by works. So if you have to use your body to promote yourself, right, and what, who cares? You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. So your works and your morality doesn't matter. And we are saved by grace. But the grace we're saved by begins to shape and mold our morality and our works. Our faith begins to shape and mold that. And so, But this lady begins to teach something that somehow makes it possible for the world and the church to make a compromise. And this church puts up with it. And some of them go along with her. And some of them are just wholehearted disciples of her. Some of them have just been hurt by her teaching. And then there's some we see in the text who have not 
yielded to this. So what we understand here, we need to understand. Uh, first of all, you need to understand that being a Christian is costly. And sometimes it may cost you your job. And it's not okay for us to find ways to compromise our faith with the world. We just, being a Christian can be hard. Right? It's not all, you know, fairies and gumdrops and rainbows and, and shiny things in the sky. It's not all that way. People lose jobs and people lose livelihood and people die and people are beheaded and, and horrible things happen sometimes to Christians just for what they believe. And, and it's not okay for us to shape and mold and try, and try to shape and mold what the faith is in order to avoid persecution. We don't seek persecution, but it's a sin for us to not adhere to our faith in order to avoid persecution. And so sometimes being a Christian is costly. But we've got to beware of tolerating sin individually and corporately. We can tolerate it individually. Jezebel, her followers, know she had led astray in some ways, were tolerating sin in their lives. She refused to deal with her sin, Jesus said. Christians aren't supposed to tolerate sin. We're supposed to hate sin. We're supposed to be in the practice of repenting of sin. In particular here, Jesus references multiple times her sexual immorality. And this is, it's twofold. There, there, it's, 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 there's idolatry involved, which is sometimes referred to as adultery and immorality in the Bible, right? Because it's spiritual immorality, spiritual adultery, away from faithfulness to Christ. But there's also literal sexual immorality involved. And it was rampant in their culture, and it's rampant in our culture. As our culture has devolved into what has been termed a sexual revolution over the last several dec- decades, it, has pro- it hasn't progressed, but digressed. Sexual immorality is not a new sin. Justifying it is not a new practice, and the church's encounter with it is not a new encounter. The church has been having to decide what to do about sexual sin in the church and in the culture as long as the church has been here. Ever since the first century. One of the first things they had to address was, hey, we've got all these Gentiles getting saved. What do we do? And one of the first things they said is, tell them not to commit sexual immorality. We know, we know they shouldn't do that, right? They gave them like three things. and Don't eat things, strangle by blood, don't eat meat, sacrifice, idols, and, and don't have sex with people you should have sex with. Like, just get, let, get, let's get them started there, right? And we'll go forward from there. It's always been an issue. It's not a new issue. It was an issue in the Old Testament we see. It was an issue in the New Testament. It was an issue 50 years ago. It's an issue 10 years ago. And it's an issue today. And it'll be an issue tomorrow. And it'll be an issue to Jesus comes back. It's not a new sin. It's not a new struggle. Believers have been struggling with this. And what to do about this. And what we need to understand. Is God's design has not changed. Sex is to be between a husband and a wife. We know this. And the covenant of marriage. And anything outside of that is sin to be repented of. Not to be justified. Beware of becoming your own personal false prophet. Not just about this sin, but about any sin. See, a lot of times, we look at things like this, and we, 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 I think we miss sometimes that sometimes we're our own personal Jezebel. We're the ones leading ourselves to think this is okay. And we find ways to rationalize and justify and, you know, my situation. And you don't understand my situation. You don't understand what I've been through. And you don't understand this. And you don't understand that. And, and many times we even say, you know, well, you know, if you, if you were to look at my life and you were to say these, like we said earlier, these nine areas I'm doing great in. So I've got this one area that I struggle with. Well, Jesus says, you know, cut your arm off in that area. You get, you know, violently go against that area. But we tend to, we want to negotiate. And that's that little Jezebel spirit within our own selves. Trying, to, we're false prophesying over our life. And we begin to speak and say things into our life. 
God's okay with this. God, God doesn't understand this. When we get outside the word, God understands this. God understands. You don't know. Who are you saying? Well, who am I to say? Well, God understands. When I say understand, I mean he's okay with. He knows everything. And he has spoken. Right? He has spoken very clearly. And he has spoken in such a way that he says, here's my word and it applies to everybody. So what about my situation? Everybody comes underneath that. And anytime you begin to take your situation and do this with it, over God's word, you are now claiming to hear from and to be speaking for God to yourself and you're like your own little personal false prophet leading yourself astray and down a path of destruction. We need to understand these sins, immorality, they're not just lost people's sins. Believers commit these sins. The reason the Bible has a lot to say about, hey Christian, don't, Flee idolatry. Hey, Christian, don't commit sexual immorality. Hey, Christian, you know, and, and, go, and the reason it addresses these things to believers is because believers commit these sins and are capable of committing these sins. But believers shouldn't stay in these sins. And believers should try to avoid these sins. And believers are to walk in repentance. Jezebel refuses to. The biggest issue for Jezebel is not just that she's done something wrong, it's that she refuses to repent of what she's done wrong. Refuses to. And what we need to understand is, not only do we have to watch ourselves individually and not tolerate evil in our own lives, but we have to watch ourselves corporately as the body of Christ. We are going to continue to see churches and false teachers who will seek to look progressive in our culture in a world where many are evolving on issues. And the Bible doesn't call us to evolve, it calls us to repent. The Bible doesn't evolve and adapt and change to fit the culture. And we need to be the people who are continually repenting and calling on others to do the same. But you can't look at anybody in the culture and say, repent, if you don't repent, if I don't repent. If we don't deal with our junk, we can't ask anybody else to deal with theirs. And the moment we can't look at the world and say, repent, we cease to be the church. We cease. That was Jesus' message. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And when we can't carry that message forward because we stop repenting, we ain't a church. We can be a lot of things. And that's why Jesus takes this so seriously with them. He says, I take this very seriously because you're tolerating evil. You've stopped repenting. And she's stopped repenting. And you just allow her to continue to teach this garbage and come in. And then you're just acting like there's no big deal. And this is a big deal. I'm, I'm about to kill her. And I'm about to kill her children. Now, he doesn't mean biological children. He means spiritual children. She had been in the church long enough to produce followers. Other people who held to her teaching. This church is, uh, I've read somewhere this church is probably 40 years old at this point. Who knows how long she's been there? Who knows how long this teaching's been prospering? We know Jesus had given her time to repent. We don't know how much time that was, but it has went on and on and on and on. And Jesus says enough. What we need to understand is when there's flagrant sin in the corporate body, in the membership of the church, it has to be dealt with. To tolerate sin in the corporate body is to sin corporately. Loving people means hating sin and confronting willful sin that damages that person in the corporate body. It's our job to love like Jesus loves, not like the world interprets and tells us to interpret love. Not to empower people in sin. She didn't just sin, she refused to repent. Well, this is what the Bible says about that. Matthew 5, and it's not going to be on the screen, so you can write it down and read it later. I'm going to read to you what Jesus said about it first. This has to do with when someone sins against you personally. 
They stole from you. They whatever, right? They defrauded you in some way. They, they damaged against your family. They, they've sinned against you personally. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 15 through 17, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Not his friend, not your friend. Don't gossip to 450 people about it. Never address it with them. Go to them. He says, go to your brother and tell him what he's done wrong. Between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. He says, that's good news. If somebody sins against you and you go tell them, hey, you've sinned. Here's what you did. Right? That was my car you stole. Whatever, right? And he says, you're right. Here's your car back. I'm sorry. I repent. He says, great. You've won your brother. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Okay? So now you need witnesses. And that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. How did they treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Like they weren't a part of the community. He doesn't mean start hating the person. He doesn't mean start harassing the person. What Jesus is just clearly pointing out here, it's very simple. When someone walk, grossly sins against you and you address it with them, they refuse to repent. Not some he said, she said stuff. Sinned against you. Not you don't like something. They sinned against you, right? And you go and, you, and they don't repent and you have to take a witness and say, listen, they know you did this. I know you did this. Admit that you did this and repent of it. And they just still refuse to repent. At some point, you've got to get church involved. Like church leadership. Like if they're part of your church. This is assuming they're part of your local church. Or if it's a big enough issue, their church. Wherever they, this is believers. We're only talking about within the context of the Christian community. This is not your atheist friend at work. You have not, they, they don't believe what you believe. You have no agreed to standard. Believers, and particularly in part of the same local body, have an agreed to standard, the word of God. And so Jesus says, at some point, you've got to get the church leadership involved. And if they just keep refusing to repent, at some point, they have to be treated like what they're acting like. That's all he's saying. They're acting like they're not a part of your community. They're acting like an outsider. Treat them like an outsider. That doesn't mean you stop loving them. Doesn't mean you, you stop praying for them. Doesn't mean you stop seeking for them. It means you have to at some point recognize that they may not be what they say they are. Paul addressed the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, it's actually, he writes Corinth after saying, hey, spiritual gifts, all this kind of stuff. You, you know, you guys are all into all this stuff. And he says, it's actually reported, though, that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. A man was in a sexual relationship with his stepmom. And you are arrogant. You're going around bragging and boasting about your spiritual gifts and about your speaking in tongues and about your prophesying, about how the Spirit of God's at work in your church. And you've got some dude coming into your church, a part of your church family, a member of your church. He's in a sexual relationship with the stepmom. He comes into your assembly and you're laughing and jovial and you're saying, hey, brother, come on, pass the communion cup. And Jesus says, and you're arrogant? Ought you not to rather to mourn? Excuse me, Paul says. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. I believe this is assuming that there's already been probably some pleas. But here's the point. Every, the point is throughout the New Testament, and you see Jesus doing the same thing here. The point, is, the point is not going on witch hunts in churches. The point is not being hypocritical and judgmental. The point, the point is this. When somebody has flagrant, flagrant open sin in their life and you refuse to go meet with them about it and help them, you can say you're a lot of things, but you can't say you're living in community with them. That is not koinonia. That is not the fellowship of the New Testament. That is not love. 
Because they have a spiritual cancer that you refuse to address and you know about it. And Jesus is saying, you need to lovingly go help them remove that cancer from their life. And if they just refuse to, and they just continue to allow it grow and fester, and they dig their heels in, and they say, I don't care what you say, I don't care what Jesus says, I don't care what his words are. And over and over and over again, they continue to do that. He's saying, at some point, for the sake of your gathering, you have to remove them from the membership. That's, that's all he's saying here. It's a grievous thing when it happens. He says, you should mourn. a difficult thing and what we need to understand is that every this is the application every church needs a policy and process for how not only to become a part of that church covenant but what causes you to cease become a part of that church covenant jesus doesn't just tell us here's how you become a part of the church right you get baptized you become part he tells us how you cease becoming a part and every church has to have that and it should reflect jesus's heart restoration the goal is always restoration Always restoration. The hope and prayer is always repentance. It's always forgiveness. And it is with a heavy and grievous tear-filled eyes that it should ever go to the full extent. And what we have to understand is you say, well, that doesn't make me comfortable. Well, it's not our church. And that's what it goes back to the whole series and where we started. It's Jesus' church. And he gets to decide how we do things. If someone refuses to live like Christ, we have to understand that there's we have to address that. An unrepentant heresy, unrepentant sexual immorality cannot be tolerated. It must be addressed for their own sake and for the sake of the body at large. Church health is about more than church growth. It's about being the church Jesus wants us to be. And for a church to be a healthy church, we've got to be willing to deal with sin when it rises and always with the goal of restoration. Here's just very quickly. Let me give you four reasons we tend to tolerate flagrant sin in the church. Fear of being judgmental. Judge not lest ye be judged. Right? We take verses and we rip it completely out of context. We should never be condemning. But we've got to have judgment and discernment among us to know what sin is and how to deal with it. He says, so we do, out of fear of being judgmental, fear of being hypocritical, we look at our, you know, well, I sin too. I don't want to, you know, and we shouldn't be. And here's the thing. This causes us to look inwardly. But a hypocrite is someone who calls someone to a standard that they have no intention of adhering to themselves. That's a hypocrite. It's not hypocritical for me to say, I've committed A sin, B sin, C sin, whatever the sin is, but I've repented of it, and I think you should repent too. That's not hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy for me to dig my heels in on a sin and then expect you to not dig your heels on that sin. That's, that's being a hypocrite. But sometimes we're, just, we're so afraid of that word, hypocrite. Fear of being unloving. Because we've defined love wrong. Right? If you had a loved one that you knew was physically sick and ill and they just continued to refuse to go to the doctor, at some point you would load them in the car and carry them. You'd give them something, knock them out, whatever you had to do if you thought their life was in danger. And it's the same case spiritually. It's only loving at some point to intervene in people's life. But we fear being unloving and impolite. And then there's just apathy due to our own personal sin. Many times we tolerate sin corporately because we've tolerated it personally. If you don't love holiness in your personal life, you'll have no desire to see it in the corporate body. And that's hard for us to hear. Because we don't like to examine our lives and look too closely. But it calls us to. Jesus calls us to. That's why he says you can't go take the plank out of your 
your, the speck out of your brother's eye when you walk around with a plank in yours. It causes us to, he says, what? Remove the plank from your eye and then go after the speck. It causes us to look inwardly and deal with our personal sin. We need to understand that sometimes Christianity is uncomfortable, uncomfortably confrontational. But it's always to be loving and humble and full of grace and truth. Sometimes it's uncomfortably confrontational. But it's always loving and humble and full of grace and truth. Let me read to you a quote from John Piper on this text that I just, it was so good, I just copied and pasted it into my notes because I wanted to read it to you. He says, For me, it is not simple. It takes tremendous spiritual insight to know when to be tough in vigilance and when to be tender in tolerance. In the one direction lurks the Ephesian indictment, you have left your first love. In the other direction lurks the other indictment, you tolerate adultery. Jesus clearly does not want us to choose between the two, but to avoid them both. Love and vigilance, tough and tender, truth and grace. This is our calling, and it's not easy. It's not easy. It requires great discernment and great prayer. It's much easier to be a a lazy church and a lazy Christian that just kind of goes about life. Right? But the problem here we see is a refusal to repent. And what you need to understand is whether it's corporately or whether it's individually, when we refuse to imprint, we're only empowering the enslavement to more and more sin. There's a difference in sinning and remaining in sin and continuing sin and, and, and repenting of that sin. If you don't want to be in repentance and to practice repentance, Christianity is just not going to work for you. I mean, it's at the core of who we are. It's at the essence. The essence, very essence in the heart of Christianity is repentance from, God, from sin toward God in Christ Jesus. And if we refuse to repent, it brings into question whether we've ever really repented in the first place. See, if we're a believer with the sin that we're harboring in our life today, the call's always the same. It's like it was to Jeze- this Jezebel. It's to repent. Because what we practice, ultimately in time, is going to reveal who we really are. If we don't practice repentance, and rather we practice sin, ultimately we'll find out that we're still enslaved to sin and not to righteousness. And here's the other, here's the good news. When I think about this, I think, you know, her story could have been so much different. Jesus says, I have given her time to repent. The Lord Jesus himself says, I have given her time. In other words, I've addressed this. Maybe it was through preaching. Maybe it was through friends. Maybe it was through people. that We don't know, but in some way, providentially, he'd addressed this and he's given her time to repent. Her story could have been so much different. It could have been this incredible story of this woman who caused so much. It could have been an Apostle Paul kind of story, right? Had caused so much damage in the church and had been radically changed by grace, but instead, judgment. Our stories don't just write themselves, right? Your story can be different. If you're engrossed in sin that you refuse to repent of, and you, re- you just you know, your story doesn't have to end poorly. It can still end well. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how much you're drowning in sin, your story can end well. That's the grace of God. It was offered even to this woman. They had done gross perverted things within the assembly of this church. But Jesus wanted her to repent. That was his heart. He wanted a restoration. Verse 22, he says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. Judgment. And I will strike her children dead. We mentioned earlier. That's her spiritual offspring. The sickbed there in the Greek is literally just bed. And kind of the point here is this, is this that I'm, I'm going to judge her. 
Judgment is coming against her. Discipline is coming. Listen, I'm going to throw into great tribulation, he says. He's not speaking to the, the tribulation that we think about in Revelation. He's just talking about trouble. And he's saying there's going to be, there's, there's consequences and I'm trying to get your attention. I will discipline you in order to get you to repent. And her offspring, those who have just completely went into her way and they're completely walking in her path, it's too late for them as well. But he wants people to repent. But if they don't repent, he's saying, listen, there comes a time when it's over. And once this life's over, it's over, right? There's no second chances after this. But in this life, chance after chance after chance, if we'll just repent. Jesus wants us to repent. The church, what we see here is the church may fail to confront rebellion properly, but Jesus doesn't. He says, the church is tolerated, the church is put up with, the church hasn't dealt with it. Okay, I'm going to deal with it. God takes sin seriously. And you know what one thing shows us how serious God takes sin more than anything? The cross. We tend to look at the, the cross and we, we think about God's love, and we need to, but we also need to understand how serious God takes sin. The cross shouts, your sin is a big deal. Our sin is serious. Our sin has consequences. It shouts that at us 2,000 years later. Sin is a big deal. God hates sin. God judges sin. Sin brings wrath. The cross shouts that because God's Son was crucified on it and bore His wrath as He bore our sin in His body. But that same cross shouts, God loves you. God does not condemn you if you are in Christ. God has judged your sin in Jesus. The same cross shouts both things. I hate sin. I hate sin. I love you. And that's where we're supposed to be on this. The balance is found in the cross. It always is. It's not a little bit of grace and a little bit of truth and a little bit of this and a little bit. It's a full measure of both. And on the cross, Jesus, God did not compromise His holiness and He did not compromise His love for you. He went all in and said, I love you. And He went all in against sin. And he calls you to do the same thing in your life individually and me to do that. To go all in against sin and all in for love. And he does the same thing corporately for the body. Be all against sin and all for loving people. These things are not enemies to be reconciled. They are friends, hate sin, love people. And that's what the cross shouts to us some 2,000 years later. Is that God both hates sin and loves people. The cross shouts. You don't have to stay in your sin. The cross shouts that if you're a believer today, you have been crucified with Christ. And your sin has died with Christ. The old you died. And you've been resurrected to new life and have new life in Christ. And if you're living in sin, you're living as a, in a false identity. You're having a personal identity crisis. Because it's not who God says you are anymore. He says you've been raised to walk in newness of life. But if you're not a believer... The cross shouts to you all kinds of hope. It says you can die to your sin and you can be raised to walk in the newness of life in Christ because Jesus has done it all. He's done it all. And Jesus says, listen, when I judge the sin in this church, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and will give to each of you according to your works. He said, I'm going to do this in such a way that I want the other churches to know what's going on. Do you catch that? All the other churches are going to know. Because this is what we need to understand. When we deal seriously with sin, whether it's personally in our lives or whether it's corporately in our body, it gets people's attention and it glorifies Jesus. We, we want people to know that Jesus is Lord, that He is the one who searches mind and heart. He's the Son of God with eyes like flame of fire. And he judges us according to our works. All those things, we, we need to deal with our sin. It reflects that. It shows that, that Jesus is Lord. So we need to deal with it personally. We need to deal with it lovingly and discerningly, corporately. 
and point people to the glory and the power of Jesus and to his cross. And he gives them this incredible promise. We don't have much time to go over it, but look at it. He promises them a few things. First of all, he says, some of you have not gotten into all this. You've been staying faithful. And they're not perfect Christians, but they haven't been led astray by this particular error. And he says, I don't lay anything new on you. Just press forward. Press onward, right? Just keep going, leaning into the truth and, and do what I'm telling you to do here. But I'm not giving you up some other, you know, 40 things to do. You've got, a, you've got enough on your plate, he's basically saying. He says, you haven't, fall, you haven't delved into what some people call the deep things of Satan. And people debate what that means, the deep things of Satan. Um, some believe it was um, maybe some kind of Gnostic heresy of, of that time. Some believe that uh, one, one particular author I read this week said that they believed that one of the things this particular prophetess would do is she would say, well, in order to reach these people in your trade guild, you've got to understand their life better. And, well, they don't know Christ. And so, you know, they're, they're, in, you know, they're, they're still taken captive by Satan to do his will. And so you need to understand the ways of Satan if you're going to understand, if you're going to be able to reach your... Some people think it was that sort of thing. A lot of different things. And I think maybe this was just kind of synonymous with the teaching that was being promoted. Because at the end of the day, a path that leads to idolatry and sexual immorality is not God's path. That's Satan's path. But he's wanting them to realize this woman, her teaching is not Christian, it's satanic. And he gives them two clear promises, though. This is Jesus' promise to every believer some 2,000 years later, too. He says he promises them two things, authority and presence. He says, what? He says, you're going to reign with me. Did you catch, did you, did you catch that? I'll give you authority over the nations. You'll rule with them with a rod. You'll rule them with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself received authority from my Father, Jesus says, "I have received authority from my Father, and I'm going to give authority to you." And I believe specifically, not to get too in, not to get too in depth here. I believe specifically, he's talking about something referred to as the millennial reign. And I think he's talking to talking to that time period here. But his point is simple. His point is this: You're going to reign with me. You're going to have authority and you're going to, I'm going to give you responsibility under me. And he says, I'm going to give you the morning star. And later in Revelation, he refers to the morning star as himself. And I think he says, listen, you need to understand something. You're, you're not dealing with the sin in your life and in your midst here and in your assembly. But you're going to reign with me. I'm going to give you responsibility over the nations. Don't you think it would be good if you start... Exercising some responsibility in your own life and in your own church. And at the same time, I think he's saying, Look, you need to understand something. Why toy with these sins and idol- and all this? And be so- I'm giving you myself. My very presence. You have this now, the Bible teaches. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And right now, Christ is with us. And then there's coming a day we will be with him. But his presence is always there. And that's what he promises to his people. 